Genesis 41, 1-16 For two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of corn, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offences today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. And the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. And they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you dream a dream, hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favourable answer. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh won. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and plenty be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow. 
for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Well done, Anita. <laughs> Thanks very much. Okay. Very well read. Um, in this series in Genesis, we're, um, we're covering quite a few chapters, and so we are having to read slightly longer chunks of text to... Um, but it's necessary so we get enough of an idea of the context of the passage and uh, what we're dealing with. So well done, everyone, for paying attention. Well done, Anita. Um, let's, let's pray uh, for God's help as we come to his word. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we pray this afternoon that it would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Amen. So I want to start by asking this afternoon, whatever happened to Aung San Suu Kyi? Have you thought that these last few years? The Nobel Peace Prize winner imprisoned at home in her country of Burma for over two decades. She was a human rights hero to the world. She was then released in 2010 and her party won a landslide election victory in 2015. And she was appointed to the role of state councillor, uh, effectively a prime minister. And, and at that moment, when she'd finally gained 
this position of power, everyone expected her to oversee sweeping democratic and human rights reforms in her country. And as we know since, they were to be bitterly disappointed. And instead, we have a situation five years on where she is a key leader in a regime that has jailed journalists, locked up critics, and presided over what the UN has described as a genocide of Rohingya Muslims. So what happened? What happened to her? Some still hope that she's playing political compromise for the sake of longer term reform. Well, maybe um, time will tell. We can, yeah, time will tell. But there, there are many others who have expressed their opinion and who know her well, who point to another explanation and, and they point to the fact uh, of her personal desire to regain the political power that was lost by her father, Aung San, when he was assassinated in 1947. And they point to her desire to hold on to that power now at all costs. Well, in Genesis 39 and 40, we have Joseph here, who also experiences a long imprisonment. And um, that's in 39 and 40. And then in 40, chapter 41, that we've just had read, he too is released from prison and given great power as prime minister of Egypt. And today we're just going to have a look at how Joseph responds to being given this great power. And so we're going to look at chapter 41 under two headings, the temptation of power and the source of true power. So first, the temptation of power. You may remember um, where we left Joseph last week. He was in prison. Uh, and at the beginning of chapter 41, another two years have passed of him being in prison. We don't quite know from the text, but it could be, it could be up to sort of seven to ten years that he ended up spending in prison. And... At the beginning of chapter 41, um, Pharaoh starts having dreams, and they're pretty disturbing dreams too. Thin and diseased ears of corn swallow up these healthy full ears. Ugly thin cows swallow up beautiful fat ones in scenes reminiscent of some zombie horror film. So, I mean, no wonder he's troubled in verse 8. And so he summons all his wise men and they haven't got a clue how to interpret these weird dreams. And then the cupbearer, who had been in prison with Joseph, makes his reappearance in verse 9. And I think the cupbearer is worth dwelling on for a moment. Because think about it, it would have been really tempting for the cupbearer not to mention the fact that there was this Hebrew guy down in the prison with an extraordinary ability to interpret dreams, because he'd done that for the cupbearer back in chapter 40. You see that the cupbearer wasn't just a bit of a bumbling, absent-minded fellow who had forgotten Joseph. Thinking about it, Joseph might well have been a threat to his position of power if Pharaoh had discovered him and promoted him. So he's in a real dilemma about what to do. Does he mention him or not? Well, at the crucial moment in verse 9, the cupbearer does the right thing. He admits that he sinned in never mentioning Joseph to Pharaoh these past two years. And I think that in the cupbearer, we have a classic everyday example of the temptation of power. Having some power can be really important to us, perhaps more important than we realise. If we aren't believers in God, we, we worry that if we lose whatever power we have in this life, 
then we're exposing ourselves to the lottery of whatever might happen to us. And if we are believers in God, perhaps we easily doubt whether God would really look after us if we lost our power. And when the moment of truth comes to, for him, the cupbearer does do the right thing. He risks giving up his power and he admits his sin. And I just wonder, put ourselves in his shoes in that moment, how might we have responded in that situation? And how might we respond in a similar situation today? Well, that's the cupbearer. Anyway, there then follows a frenzy of activity in verse 14 as Joseph is fetched, shaved, cleaned and rushed up into Pharaoh's presence. Nobody wants to keep Pharaoh waiting when he's in this kind of mood. And in the verses 17 through to 36 that follow, Joseph listens to Pharaoh's dreams. He interprets them and into the bargain, he proposes a comprehensive economic plan to prepare for seven years of famine. What Rishi Sunak could do with that kind of advice right now. And there's clearly such authority in what uh, Joseph says that in verses 37 to 39, there is no doubt in the mind of Pharaoh and his officials that the spirit of God is in this man. So Pharaoh there and then makes Joseph prime minister of Egypt with total authority for implementing his economic plan. It's a quite stratospheric rise to power. And picture the scene in verse 40. Joseph has been brought up to the state rooms of Pharaoh's palace before all his courtiers and government officials. And he's then told by Pharaoh a series of things. He's told that he's going to rule over them all and over the whole country. He's given uh, his signet ring, which gives him authority to validate all documents, edicts and laws in Pharaoh's name. He clothes him in the finest clothes and jewelry of government. He then rides in his own chariot with the people of Egypt worshipping him. And Pharaoh gives him an Egyptian name. And finally, he also marries into the very elite of Egyptian society by marrying the daughter of the leading Egyptian priest. So Pharaoh places Joseph at the very heart of political, economic and cultural power in Egypt. And after all that Joseph has been through these last few chapters, you might well think, oh, finally, Joseph has arrived. All his troubles are over. But actually, he's never been in any more danger than he is right now at this moment, because Pharaoh has given him power, great power. And there are two great dangers that go with power for him here. The first danger, I think, is assimilation. Assimilation. So do you see how Pharaoh seeks to assimilate Joseph into Egyptian culture? He recognises that Joseph's got great power and he wants to use him. But at the same time, the last thing he needs is a rival source of power right at the heart of his government. So he seeks to assimilate Joseph. The quicker he gets him to experience the comfort, status and power of Egyptian life, the more likely Joseph is to think that all these blessings that he suddenly got are due to the brilliance of Egyptian civilization and they're not from God. Assimilation is one of the oldest tricks in the power book. And so let me ask you, uh, as a Christian living in 21st century Western culture, 
where are the dangers of, of assimilation uh, for us this Tuesday lunchtime? Because let's face it, working in politics can give us access to significant power and influence. Now imagine if something required you to take a principled stand in your work in politics uh, as a member, uh, as a staff member, as staff of the house, and you knew that this was going to have negative implications for your career prospects, where do you think your loyalty would lie in that situation? Or when your beliefs about God are very different from the wider culture around you, how prepared are you to make a stand and to face the consequences? How painful such dilemmas as these feel to you right now is an, is an indicator of where your true loyalties lie. Second great danger for Joseph is attribution. Attribution. How easily he could have sat back in his new palace with his celebrity wife and all the power and wealth he could have ever dreamt of and thought to himself, haven't I done well? I've been through a heck of a lot in my life, frankly, so far, but I've worked my way all the way to the top through my intelligence, my determination and my courage. And do you know what? I deserve this. I'm going to settle down and enjoy it. In other words, he could attribute all that he now has to himself. And we're all inclined to do this. But when we attribute power to ourselves, again, we're falling for an illusion because in reality, we have very little power actually over our own lives. We didn't choose our genes. We didn't choose our upbringing. We didn't choose our education, the century or the country we were born in. So many of the key things that set the course of our lives are actually totally out of our control. And the British poet W.E. Henley is quite interesting on this. He had to battle great physical disability in his life, but he had a successful career as a critic and as an author. And as a young man, he, he wrote that famously defiant poem, Invictus, which includes these lines. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But actually, contrary to what he says, his success as a writer would have been impossible had he been born without great literary talent, with below average IQ or with different parents and different social connections. We fool ourselves when we attribute our power and our success solely to our own efforts. And if you'd been given the same kind of power and privilege Joseph was given, I wonder how would you have responded? So that's our first point today, the temptation of power. Let's look now at how Joseph responds to this temptation under our second heading, the source of true power. And the remaining verses of chapter 41 that we didn't have time for in the readings describe Joseph putting this economic plan into action. Six years have now passed when Joseph has been right at the very height of power in Egypt. What has happened to him? Well, verses 50 to 52 uh, give, us, give us the answer. In the seventh year, his wife gave birth to two sons. and Joseph gave them Hebrew names. Now, this in itself is a statement. It would have been much more socially acceptable and normal to give them Egyptian names. 
particularly if you were in the heart of the establishment. But more significant even than this is the meaning of those two names. So in both names, God is recognized as the power in Joseph's life in both the bad times and the good times. So the name Manasseh looks back at Joseph's bad times, what he suffered at the hands of his own family and in his long years in prison. It means God has made me forget all my hardship. And the name Ephraim uh, refers to the good times that he's experienced in these last six years in Egypt. It means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So I think this is clear evidence that Joseph, even after six years at the heart of power in Egypt, he remains utterly convinced that everything in his life depends on the power of God. And actually, did you notice that this was true of him as soon as he started rising back to power again? So earlier in the chapter, back in 15, before Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams, Pharaoh flatters him and says, I hear you're one who can interpret dreams. And it would have been so easy for Joseph to reply, you're not wrong, Pharaoh. I'm your man when it comes to dreams. But you know, without missing a beat, Joseph replies, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And three more times in verses 25, 28, and 32, Joseph repeats during the interpretation of the dreams that it's God who's given the revelation about what's to happen, and it's God who is going to make it happen. So despite these strong temptations to assimilate to the power around him or to attribute his power to himself, Joseph knew that all he had was because of God's power and love. He'd seen it at work in his own life, and he knew that it had been the same for Jacob, his father, and Abraham and Isaac before him. But do you know what? The amazing thing for us all these years later is, is that actually since the coming of Christ, we actually know so much more of this powerful love of God than Joseph did at that moment. Because hundreds of years after Joseph, God the Son became a man in Jesus Christ. He, he gave up his power to become a man. And he was the most powerful man who ever lived. But he didn't use his power to be served, but he used it to serve us, even to the point of giving his life for us. He died for our sins in our place so that we might know the forgiveness of God and life with God forever. Or to put it another way, he gave up his power so that we might receive his true power. And true power, according to the, to the Bible, is to know that we are infinitely loved and forgiven by the God who made us. Isn't that the most important thing we can know? Do you see, if we know this true power, we no longer need to desperately seek our own power in life. Because in Christ, we've already been given the most powerful thing we, we are ever going to know in this life. And just think for a moment how empowering this is. If we know that God is infinitely powerful and, and loving, then we can, tr we can trust our lives to him. We no longer need to defensively use power to try and protect and promote ourselves. But also positively, the powerful love of God actually empowers us to do good. 
because we, we're not having to look inwards to ourselves uh, and to our own interests uh, all the time, because God has already got those covered. He's got us covered. So knowing that, we can actually look outwards to serve and love other people. And you can see how that powerful love of God certainly had that effect in Joseph's life. And we'll see that in the, in the coming chapters uh, over the coming weeks. And I want us just to imagine as we finish what that same powerful love of God might do in our own lives. Let's, let's pray together as we close that um, God might help us to see that. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, give us, we pray, such a deep conviction of your all-surpassing love to us in Christ, that rather seeking our own power all the time, you might turn us outwards to love and to serve others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.